Thank you, Grace. And, um, and thanks, Steve, for mentioning the Radio 2 bit uh, tomorrow morning. Um, there's this spot called Pause for Thought. Has anybody heard it? Probably the 915. Okay, there's a few of you. Um, there's uh, three Pause for Thought spots on Radio 2. 1.30 in the morning, which is a pre-recorded one, which you'd want it to be pre-recorded, wouldn't you, if you were doing it. Uh, about half a million people are still listening at 1.30 in the morning. Then there's the 5.45 slot, which they've put me into, which is a live slot. Um, and then there's the 9.15 slot, which is live. There's 10 million people listening to the 9.15 slot. Not quite as many listening at 5.45, but still about 2 million people. So this is kind of a, you know, a, a great um, open door. to. This is my second time doing it. Um, uh, it's a spiritual spot. It's like a God spot on commercial, you know, on, on mainstream radio. And uh, they say, look, you can talk about anything you like. Just don't preach. And tomorrow morning, I've, I can speak about anything I want, uh, apart from the fact that it has to be about Bob Marley. <laughs> so it's going to be a spot on Bob Marley, uh, which required a fair bit of research on my behalf this week. Well, I just love some of the prophetic words that have come out this morning, and uh, yeah, we will need to connect all of those in, because I think some of those have dovetailed really, really nicely together. Um, I'm going to be talking, is this working? It didn't work for Dave, so I'm just going to give it another go. Does it work? It does work. Excellent. Okay, you shouldn't have seen that before you saw it. You've all got, got a piece of paper. If you need a pen, I'm just wondering whether the stewards could also hand those out. If anybody needs a pen, this is important later on. Uh, you don't need to fill it out now. Don't doodle on it. Don't write nasty words about myself and my preaching on it. Uh, but if you don't have a pen, put your hand up and the stewards will pass you one because later on we're going to be using these precious little pieces of paper. By the time we reach our 20s, most of us have a dream, don't we? Most of us have some sort of dream as to maybe who we want to become. We want to become an artist or an author. Maybe we want to become a musician. We want our CDs to sell right around the world. Maybe we want to become an engineer. Maybe we want to become a builder. Maybe we want to become a pastor. We have a dream for the kind of person we want to become. Maybe we have a dream for something that we want to achieve. We want to plant a church or start a business. We want to have our art reach the masses, have everybody download our songs off iTunes. Most of us have got some sort of dream by the time we reach our 20s. By the time we reach our 30s, we may well have had an opportunity to see some of those dreams come to life or perhaps see some of those dreams die. We're going to be talking about broken dreams this morning, and my prayer is that some of the things that have been talked about this morning would actually become a reality for you. In fact, let's just pray that. Lord, I just ask that by your Spirit, you would draw all the things that you want us to be addressing this morning to our hearts and to our souls, and then also to our minds, so that we might bring them to you and have you transform them in the way that brings that life that's been prophesied, that brings that depth, the deep wells that has been talked about this morning, that results in us leading little trails of people out of the darkness, as has been taught in Jesus' name we pray. We'll never forget the day in the year 2000 when my wife, Marin, uh, came to me in the kitchen and she said, Honey, I think it's time. And I said, Time for what? And she said, Time we started a family. And I said, What, right now? <laughs> Sounds good to me. 
As any couple who makes that decision knows, from that point on, every 28 days, you're looking for signs of success, aren't you? And it's common for the the pattern to go something like this. Expectation, 28 days later, disappointment. That's quite common. Expectation, disappointment. And then often, expectation, excitement, right? Well, for Marin and I, the pattern went something like this. Expectation, disappointment. Expectation, disappointment. Expectation, disappointment, expectation, disappointment, expectation, disappointment, expectation, disappointment. After nine months, we went and got some tests done. Those tests revealed there was a problem on my side and that without technological assistance or a divine miracle, that dreamt-of baby was going to be very difficult for us to have. Now, as any infertile couple knows, from that point on, you go through this pendulum swing of emotions. So at one stage, you're looking at all the upside there is to being a childless couple because you've got more time for yourselves, you're not, you can travel, you're less tied down, you don't have to be kind of based around one particular location for schooling or everything, you've got a lot more freedom. You can go on a Saturday morning to a cafe, you can have endless lattes, you can read the paper for hours on end. Mums and dads, are you not a little bit jealous right now? But it doesn't... It doesn't take long, of course, before the pendulum swings the other way and that maternal-paternal drive kicks in and you long to hold a little us. Well, that pattern kicked in for us. And so at one moment we're thinking about the positives and yet the next moment we're uh, trying all sorts of fancy supplements. At one stage our table was filled with lots of little vials and, and bottles of little things and pills and potions that I was taking. Uh, we tried chiropractic. Somebody said that might work. Uh, it's amazing what you'll try when you are desperate. We tried healing prayer a number of times. A number of times we were prayed for. And one particular night I need to tell you about, a bunch of people gathered in our lounge rooms very specifically to pray for us. They all gathered around us, and particularly they gathered around me. And as they laid hands on me and started to pray, it's as if God walked in the room. Suddenly, out of nowhere, I began to cry. My wife had never seen me cry, because I'm a man and I don't cry. But I cried this night, deep sobs that came from I don't know where. And as a result of walking out that night, gosh, I was exhausted, but I also felt like something had been broken, something had been freed, something perhaps had been healed. And so for the next 28 days, there is expectation, followed by disappointment. In 2006, we try our first round of IVF, in vitro fertilization. There's a particular form of IVF that would work in our situation because the problem was so bad. They take a a single sperm, they take a single egg, they actually uh, unite them uh, in the lab. They try and grow that to embryonic stage in in a Petri dish and then they implant that into the woman. Charming stuff, really. We went through that for the first time in 2006. We thought, we'll just give it a go. And so all our friends across Australia, where we're still living at the time, are praying for us. And we're thinking, okay, we're just putting ourselves in the place of God where he might want to use this particular tool. And we're praying and everybody else is praying. And so there is expectation, expectation, expectation. Disappointment. 2007, some friends come around for lunch and they place into Merrin's arms their newborn baby boy. And Marin holds the baby, and I'm looking at her, and I'm thinking, well, she's not bursting into tears. She's not running out the room. All the things that, you know, some people would struggle with. She's gooing and she's going. She's doing all the things she's supposed to do when you're holding somebody's child. 
The friends go home after lunch. I can't find Merrin. I walk around. I find her in the end sitting in our bedroom on our bed, dabbing her eyes, a sea of used tissues around her. And she looks up at me and she says, do you think we should try adoption? Eight months after that, the social worker gets up from our final interview of assessment to work out whether we are suitable people to look after somebody else's biological child. The social worker gets up, she heads to the front door, she opens the door, she's about to leave, and she turns around and she says, I know I shouldn't say this. It's very unprofessional of me to give my feelings, but I'm going to say it anyway. You're a very attractive couple. I don't think you're going to be waiting long until you're placed with a child. Just wait for the phone call. So we wait for the phone call. One week passes. It's not going to happen this fast. Two weeks pass. Expectation. Three, four, five weeks pass. We've just got to be patient. The phone call will come. Six weeks pass. No phone call. Two months. Three, four, five, six months. Every month is a month closer to the phone call, love. We've just got to be patient. Seven, eight, nine, ten months. No phone call. Eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. 16 months and no phone call. Hope 13.12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart. 17, 18, 19 months, Merrin's heart is sick. 20, 21 months, 22, and after 23 months without a phone call, Merrin comes to me again, tears rise, and she says, I can't take this anymore. I can't do this. I can't be in this limbo period all the time, this constant emotional rise and fall, expectation, disappointment, waiting for the phone call to come, waiting for IVF to work. I can't live in this. Can we try IVF one more time? So in 2010, 10 years after that original conversation in the kitchen, we went, go and find, uh, try our kind of our final big push on trying to have a family through IVF. And we go into our first round of that, that new uh, kind of push. And uh, it comes time for the first embryo to be transferred. And I think to myself, you know, Sheridan, maybe this has been the problem the whole time. Maybe it's been your lack of faith. Maybe your spirituality is deficient. Maybe this is the reason why after 10 years you're still waiting for a child. Maybe the Pentecostal prosperity preachers have got it right. And instead of asking God for something, I need to just command a blessing. Maybe I just need to trust but not trust in a sense of a trust, whatever you... No, 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 I just need to expect. And so instead of asking God, I say, okay, well, God, well, I'm going to try to exercise my faith a little bit more. Instead of asking, I'm just going to expect you're going to give us a child. I'm going to stand in faith you're going to give us a child. I command a blessing for a child. And so the embryo is transferred, and there is expectation, 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 disappointment. Another embryo is transferred. Lord, just say the word and your servant will be healed. You know that verse in Luke? I love praying that verse, by the way, when it comes to healing. Because it actually says two things. It actually says, you just say the word, so it's God's responsibility, and, the, and your servant will be healed. That's our faith. We know that as soon as you say it, we will. Lord, just say the word and your servant will be healed. Expectation, 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 disappointment. Another embryo is transferred. Another embryo is transferred. By mid-December of 2010, we have come down to our final embryo. And by this stage, Merrin and I are exhausted. We've decided this is it. If this doesn't work, then there is no more attempts in any way, shape or form. We're not going back to fostering. We're not going back to adoption. We're not going to try IVF again. 
we are going to call the journey to an end. We have been on hold for too long. So we have everybody around Australia praying. And it's a good thing they were praying because by this stage, Merrin and I had nothing left in us. We were empty, completely and utterly spiritually shot through. But because they were praying, remember those friends who lower that crippled person down in front of Jesus? They even dig a hole in the roof. That's the kind of friends these were for us, you know? Jesus actually healed the guy, not because of his faith, because of this. So because they were praying, there was still that little bit of expectation, a little bit of expectation, a little bit of expectation. And it was met with a phone call. It was a lady by the name of Emily from the IVF clinic. And she called and she said, it's looking good. And Marin said, define good. Is this good, good? Is this good? Or is it good, good, good? And Emily said, your hormone levels are exactly where we'd expect them to be right now for a pregnancy. Well, can you imagine the jubilation that erupted amongst our family and friends? My mum squealed with delight, as mothers apparently are wont to do with this kind of news. My dad has a particular kind of victory laugh that he withholds for Voisey victories. I'm not going to do it for you, but he did the Voisey victory laugh. Our friends and family were getting texts and, and, and you know, emails of the news and everything while they were doing their shopping, and they're bursting into tears in the middle of the shopping centre, texting us back saying, we can't believe it, God has come through, God's given the miracle. At the 11th hour, isn't that just like God? After 10 years wait, you're going to have a baby. We're living in Sydney, and it's Christmas time, so we drive from Sydney to Brisbane to have Christmas with our families. On Christmas Eve, we get another phone call from Emily. She has the results of the latest blood test, and she says, I'm so, so sorry. Because it had all been a mirage. All those symptoms had just been a mirage. Even the doctors had been fooled. Marin, I remember, put the phone down, walked into the room where we were staying, curled up in a fetal position, and that's where our 10-year dream of having a child came to an end. We didn't feel like celebrating Christmas that day. And so in the afternoon of Christmas Eve, we got back in the car packed the bags, and we started driving back to Sydney. We stopped at a motel overnight. We walked into the motel, dumped our bags on the floor. Merrin collapsed onto the bed in tears. I pulled out my journal, and I wrote these words. I can remember them word for word. Lord, this is cruel, leaving us in this wilderness. We've been walking around for years, tired, thirsty, and confused. One minute we've glimpsed the promised land, and the next minute you've barred us from entering it. Do you have a broken dream? Most of us have one by the time we reach the age of 40, 50, definitely. If you have experienced a broken dream of some kind, then you'll have a bit of an idea as to the emotional impact of this word, this phrase, the wilderness. Because the wilderness is that dry and barren place between longing and fulfillment, the place where you are waiting for the husband, the child, the career, the music to take off, all the broken dreams, all the unfulfilled dreams, all the longings over here, and yet it never seems to come, the healing. Do you have a broken dream? The wilderness is a pretty horrible place to dwell, especially when you dwell in it for 10 years. Some of you have gone through wildernesses much longer than that. Thank God there is more to the wilderness than broken dreams and disappointment. 
Where did I get the language from? This wilderness and promised land and everything. Where did I borrow the language? You know. Where did I get it from? The Old Testament. Which event in the Old Testament? The Exodus, where maybe two million Jews are led out of 400 years of captivity in, in uh, Egypt to go for a, what should have been a 12-day trek through the wilderness, lasted 40 years, to then get to the Promised Land. A few months after that fateful phone call on Christmas Eve, I pulled out the Bible and I reread that story. And I was surprised at the frame that it put around our experience. Did it answer all the questions about a broken dream? No, it didn't. Did it say why God hadn't given us a child? It didn't. But did it put some kind a sense of perspective on our experience. Yes, it did. And so I want to just go and explore this passage for a little bit of time. Now you have a choice. We can either read through the whole of the book of Exodus and half the book of Numbers, or there is a little passage in Deuteronomy 8, which in a few verses kind of sums it up. Which do you choose? (laughs) Exodus. Okay, right. We've got a long way ahead of us. Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 9. The 40 years is over. They're on the eve of walking into the promised land and Moses gets up before the Israelite people and he has these words to say. Remember how the Lord your God led you all away in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. The wilderness for many people is a place of warfare. I think of a distant friend of mine who a few months ago died of and to her dying day, she was binding the devil and commanding the spirit of infirmity to leave her body. It was a place of warfare for her, and every day it, she was doing warfare. For other people, the wilderness is a place of resignation. I think of another friend some years ago who was dying of cancer, and he didn't want any prayer for healing at all because his understanding was that uh, well, if anything happens to me, it's because of God's will, and therefore if this cancer has happened to me, it's God's will that I have cancer, and therefore why should I fight against God's will? Do you see the logic? And so some people it's the place of, of warfare, other play, people it's a place of resignation, we just have to accept these kinds of things. Moses doesn't say it's either one of those two things at all. He gets up and he says something else. He says, to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. Can I suggest to you that the wilderness, first and foremost, is a place of revelation. It reveals something about our hearts. Now, this is a family time slot, and uh, all the kids have gone out to Sunday school and stuff, right? Apart from, no, they've all gone out. Okay, good. So I'm going to speak in code for a bit anyway, just simply because these things can get a little bit awkward, and I'm going to see how clever you are in order that you can follow along with me, okay? As I said before, a few months after we started trying for a family, there came a time where I had need to have some tests done. And uh, I had to provide shall we call it a sample? Are you with me? Three of you are. The rest of you are still in the dark. I'm not going to say it. Ask the person next to you. If they're a teenager, just go to the person after them. Okay, so I had this opportunity. I could either provide this sample by going into the IVF clinic, ducking into the toilet, or Marin and I could provide what they called a home collection. Are you with me still? Marin and I chose the home collection. I was at a church speaking this story, and the pastor went, yeah, amen. <laughs> <laughs> 
And very soon we had this, you know, uh, little specimen jar with this precious contents. Merrin was kind of wrapping it up in a, in a cardigan, I think, to keep it warm and you know, treating it like this little chick, you know, this precious little thing. And we jumped in the car and we, we raced off to the IVF clinic and we found ourselves in this ludicrous position, sitting in the car across the road from the IVF clinic. I'm looking at Merrin, Merrin's looking at me, I'm looking at her, and I say to her, you are taking it in. <laughs> And she says, I'm not taking it in. I say, well, I'm not taking it in. And she says, well, I'm not taking it in. Well, I say, there's no way I'm going to take it in. What do I do? I walk into the, to the front door. I walk up to the receptionist and I go, um, hi, this is for you. Merrin said he sends it with all his love. I can't take it in. Well, I'm not going to take it in. Just then a lady walked down the street and I started winding down the window. I said, if you're not going to take it in, I'm going to ask her to take it in. Merrin took it in. You know, we laughed so much that day and probably it was one of the few times that we laughed from that point on. If only we knew the stress that was going to come into our lives as a result of that test result. And you know what, we tried so hard from that point on and everything else that followed to do this bit here. You know, whether or not you would keep his commands. And that command not to take life was a big one for us. I don't know if you know much about IVF, but every day around the world, thousands of embryos, good quality embryos, are actually flushed down the sink because the couples that have produced them no longer need them because maybe they've already gone through a round and it resulted in the child. Maybe another round, they've got, they've got two children, they don't need any more. We struggled with that ethically. And so we made this commitment that we would implant every embryo that resulted from the IVF process. Easier said than done. What do you do when the doctor comes to you and says, well, we have this embryo that's in such bad shape, it's in such bad quality, it's really not worth transferring. In fact, it costs you thousands of pounds every time to transfer. On most occasions, we actually went against what the doctor said and implanted anyway to try and stay by a commitment. One time we didn't. I hope we made the right decision. Because what happens when you go through the wilderness is that all your good intentions are tested. Probably there was a time in your life, I hope there was, like there was in mine, where I said to Jesus, anywhere, anything, anytime. It's in the wilderness, Jesus says, okay, I'll take you up on the offer. And most of us will go through the wilderness and need grace because we won't make it through perfectly. We just won't. And that's what grace is for. Amen. It will reveal something about us. It will reveal our hearts. Because you and I both know that you, know, you can tick all the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal or commit adultery. Or, or you can tick all of those things but still do it with bitterness in your heart. So it does actually more than just show us whether we're obedient to the law or not. It actually shows the quality of our hearts as we go through it. And I have permission from Merrin to let you know that she didn't fare too well in this area. Because just like the Jews, if you know the story, they grumbled and they complained and they complained about the leadership and they complained about the food. Uh, they wanted to go back to Egypt because apparently the cuisine was better. They, they complained about everything that was possibly to actually complain about and they grumbled and they thought God was going to kill them because they didn't think it was a very nice God because why would a God leave them in the wilderness for such a long time when the vultures are flying around them and it's dry and it's dirty and there's hardly any food around? Well, the same kind of thing happened for Merrin. These are some of the things that Merrin was writing in her journal during this time. I wish I could trust God again. I wish I could trust that there's some grand plan or reason behind him not giving us a child. 
What can you trust God for when you ask with all your heart and you're ignored? God feels like an old friend who no longer returns my calls. Maybe God is just mean. She didn't go in and through the wilderness as some kind of saint, you know, bounding into the challenges and saying, well, I just trust in the Lord. No, she didn't, just like the Jews. She didn't doubt God's existence, but she did start to question his goodness. And how many of us can say the same thing? When we're going through a wilderness time, it's actually the first thing we're going, are you good? Are you there? Are you good? Well, the Israelites did it. Merin did it. And if the Israelites and Merin did it, well, you're in pretty good company, don't you think? It would reveal something different about my heart again. Some months later, Merrin and I were sitting by the Sydney Harbour talking about the future. And Merrin turned to me and she said, if we don't have a family, the thought of life just going on as usual is too much for me to, to contemplate. And Sheridan came to the rescue. He put his arm around his wife, you know, saviour is here. And he said, what would be a nice consolation prize for you, love? If you can't have a family, what, what, what would be a nice thing for you to have? And she said, I want to start again. Start again? Overseas. Overseas? Can we move to Europe? Europe. <laughs> Marin had only really had one dream in her life, and that was to become a mum, and it was denied her. The only other thing that she'd ever dreamt of having or doing was living and working overseas. And now it seemed like a good time for her to have a dream fulfilled. How is that Proverb 13 finish? Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. And now it seemed like a really good time for her to have that new sense of life. I could provide that, but I didn't like the cost. Because really our story is about two 10-year dreams. One is a 10-year dream of having a family that never came to fruition. The other one, though, is a 10-year dream of my career, my ministry. And that did. So I can tell you about a moment when I was sitting by the Brisbane River and I had this dream for this radio show that would reach Australia's spiritual but not religious crowd, that it would be a national show, live music, really good guests, live talk back, heard across the nation. Ten years later, that show came to fruition. And very soon it was heard in cities all around Australia, 100,000 listeners on a Sunday night, which is significant in Australian terms. Top 10 iTunes podcast, yada, yada, yada. During that same 10 years, I had a dream of writing books, and I started writing books. During that same 10 years, I really had a dream of speaking at conferences and things, and I got great invites. So things were going swimmingly for me. Marin wants me to give it up. You ask any publisher, there is very little chance of somebody getting published in a country where they're not known. But the thing would be that I'd have to let go of this dream, but I'd, more than that, I'd have to let go of the influence I was having. We were having politicians call into the show, unbidden. Uh, we were having all sorts of people come to faith. We had a Hindu priest call in one night. Muslims would call into the show. All the things that you really want, like have a real firing radio show to do, and good stuff was happening, really good stuff was happening, and we were starting to see change as a result of that. But friends, just be careful. Even though we talk about influence at all our Christian conferences, and influence is a good thing. We talk about changing culture and transforming culture and being right in the midst of the culture and bringing influence to it, and it's all a really good thing. But I tasted a little bit of that, and only a little bit, and it was enough for me to start building my sense of identity on it. Do you understand what I mean? And so why the wilderness kind of revealed in Merin a sense of mistrust of God, for me, I wonder whether it actually revealed a little idol and a little idol that was called influence. And I had to let that go. 
and I didn't like that, and I was screaming and crying and holding on to it as much as I could. The wilderness is a number of things, but first of all, it's a place of revelation. It reveals our hearts. What will it reveal of your heart when you go through it? Moses continues on. God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. It was a place of revelation, but it was also a place of provision. It was a place where even though they grumbled and complained, God provided them with manna from heaven and quail from the skies and water from rocks and ever sturdy shoes. He provided for them in all sorts of ways, as he does for us when we're going through our wildernesses as well. Not that we can see it, because normally when we're going through the wilderness, all we can see are the four walls of the problem, right? That's all we can see. It might be the hospital ward, and that's the four walls that we live around. It might be the single sites. We're visiting that every day, hoping Mr. or Mrs. Wright is there. That's all we can see. But God's providing for us all the time with light and sunshine and blue skies today. Hallelujah. <laughs> Puppy dogs. All sorts of amazing things God gives us all the time without us even realizing it. How many of us have really had to pray that verse in the Lord's Prayer, give me today my daily bread? He provided for us during that 10 years, but now we needed something particular. If we really were going to see this kind of new beginning happen, we needed some sort of opportunity overseas in Europe. (laughs) And so that began another little uh, kind of story for us. A few months after that conversation, I got a phone call from Merrin. By this stage, we'd already given up our jobs uh, we had already started selling some things off. We knew that we were going. We just didn't know where we were going, uh, which is always an interesting position to be in. And Merrin had really had, had a, her heart set on going to Switzerland because Merrin is a medical researcher. Actually, that's what she'll tell you. I will tell you she is a biostatistician. The problem is when we mention the word statistics to you, you'll go, oh, that's terrible at maths, that's terrible, and you kind of draw away from the conversation. But if you say that she's a medical researcher, then you go, oh, wow, she's saving the world. (laughs) Marin is a medical researcher. And there's a lot of need for people with her skills in Switzerland. Then, of course, we found out that the Swiss don't actually like other people. And so we couldn't get get the visas uh, required to get there. And so it looked like another dream was going to be dashed. And then there was this surprising opportunity for Merrin to have an interview with an English university that also did a lot of er work in this area on medical research. She had had this telephone interview, a very intense telephone interview, where they had pummeled her with all sorts of things like risk analyses and all sorts of models and things that she uses in her day-to-day work. And she'd walked out of that interview feeling that, you know, she hadn't probably done as well as she needed to to clinch it. They were going to get back to her in two weeks. Two days later, she's on the phone saying, I've just got an email and they've just got, a, got the result. And I said, well, read it. She said, well, let me read it to you. It says, we are pleased to offer you the position of medical statistician at the Centre for Statistics and Medicine at Oxford University. Now, see, I know, it's pretty cool. Now, of course, for all of you, it doesn't really mean very much because you've all gone through Oxford University <laughs> and you've all got your DPhils. In fact, if I was to point randomly at people here, I reckon you either got a DPhil or you were in the process of getting a DPhil. <laughs> Ellie. Right. Steve Jones. Simon, do you have a DPhil? Oh, yes, you do. 
That's right, because you all do. When we first came to Oxford, I felt so intimidated because it felt like everybody at McDonald's and everybody who was picking up my garbage on a Tuesday morning all had DFELs as well. <laughs> but this was not on our agenda. It wasn't on our radar. The wilderness really can be a place of provision, and sometimes in very unexpected ways. You just don't expect it. Moses has a lot more to say. He had already said to them, in the wilderness you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. Now he goes on and says, know in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Father, son, carries, disciplines. Don't miss these words. They are significant. You and I are so used to the idea of God being a father because we read the New Testament. This is the very first time in scripture God is ever addressed as a father. Now think about that. I don't know about you, but when I'm going through the wildernesses of life, it's normally in the wilderness I'm actually wondering whether God is a good father. For the Jews, it's where they discovered he was the father. They didn't know him as a father before that. They knew him as creator, king, lord, judge. Irony? It's in the wilderness we discover. We discover. It's a place of discovery. We discover who we really are and who God is. God is our father and we are his children. Marin and I pack our bags, we sell the car, we get rid of all the baby stuff. If you had come into our flat in Sydney around about this time, and if you had walked into the kitchen, you would have seen a high chair and next to the high chair, a pram next to the pram a stroller. If you'd walked into the laundry, you would have found the big rolled up, folded up play rug. If you'd opened up some of the drawers in the bottom of the kitchen, you would have found the bottles and the teats and those cute little forks and spoons that you parents use with your kids. If you'd walked into our bedroom, looked underneath the bed, you would have seen the porticot. If you'd opened up some of our drawers, you would have found the jumpsuits and all the stuff, all the stuff we had collected over 10 years waiting for the phone call to come, right? There comes a time where you have to let go of the symbols of the wilderness, if you like, in order to move on. It was very freeing the day that we did. So we let go of those. We went to the airport. We strapped ourselves in. And before we knew it, we had arrived in Oxford. And we arrive in this amazing city. We arrive in this amazing city. And it comes time, of course, for Meryn to have her first day at the university. And so we do what you're supposed to do, apart from pray. We actually go and get Meryn a new outfit. Because you have to have a good impression on your first day, right? So uh, Meryn puts her outfit on and she comes down uh, the stairs on her first day of work. And she says, how do I look? And I say, honey, when those medical statisticians at your office see you today, they are going to spill their weak tea down their beige cardigans. Because <laughs> she looked good. <laughs> but we were, we, were, we were anxious. We'd come a long way for this not to work. And there was no guarantees that it would work. But she came home with a smile. And of course, you have your ups and downs at work, but she continued to have a smile as the weeks and the months rolled on. Did a job at Oxford University replace not having a child? Of course, it didn't. But it was the new beginning that Proverbs talks about. So for Merrin, it was like coming to Oxford was like we left the wilderness, we came to Oxford, and she entered the promised land. And for me, it was like we left the wilderness, came to Oxford, and I entered the wilderness <laughs> again. This might be starting to happen now, but it wasn't happening before when very well-connected people were putting my name forward to the BBC, but the BBC weren't returning my phone calls. I thought I had this really good book. 
And I pitched it to a couple of UK publishers and they turned it down because who's Sheridan Voisey? And this lasted for quite a few months. In fact, it went on for about a year. And I was kind of starting to really wonder what my future was and what my life was from that point on. And the ugly emotions that came as a result of that, the jealousy that arose in my heart for people who had the book contracts, the envy that arose in my heart for people who had the cool speaking engagements, the jealousy and the envy that was so ugly, was it? Reveals something about our hearts? What happens when we go through the wilderness is that all our important but secondary identities get stripped away from us. Here's a question for you. If you can never become a mother, who are you? If you can never become a father, who are you? If you can never become the artist who everybody downloads their songs from iTunes, who are you? If you can never, ever, Sheridan, be on the radio again, who are you? If nobody ever publishes your book again, Sheridan, who are you? In fact, if you just stay in your room for the rest of your life writing out books that nobody reads, who are you? Ultimately, all of those important but secondary identities are stripped away from us in the wilderness. And we are left with the big question, who am I? Is there anything firmer, anything more solid, any deeper foundation that we can build our life on? Listen to Moses. As he disciplines his sons, so the Lord your God disciplines you. This is what is left, friends, when all the secondary identities are stripped away. You are your father's son or daughter. I had taught that. I would preached it go through the wilderness and I really had to feel it and believe it and so everything can be taken away from you every other identity really can be taken away from you tomorrow but how great the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God tell me one thing that can take that away from you failure sickness mental impairment death it's in the wilderness that we discover who we really are they can never be taken away Never can be taken away. Children of God. Moses isn't finished. He's got one more thing to say. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering him, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A good land. He's bringing you into a good land. Here is what follows Here is what happens after you go through the place. Yes, it's a place of revelation. Yes, it's a place of provision. Yes, it's a place of discovery. But beyond that, it's also a place of transition. After the wilderness comes a new beginning. After the wilderness comes a new beginning. And doesn't that give us hope when we're going through our own wilderness journeys? This too will end. Around about the time of that phone call on Christmas Eve in 2010. I interviewed somebody many of you will know, the writer, poet, humorist, Adrian Plass. Anybody read any of his books, like any of his work? If you haven't, you need to find out. He's a lovely guy. He's also a very, very funny man. And I had him on the radio show. Uh, Did I tell you I had a radio show? Lots of people listening to it. I had interviewed uh, Adrian for the first time in another radio station, 2001, and a number of times since, and we'd kind of gotten to know each other over the years. And he asked me when we came off air, he just said, well, how are you, Sheridan? (laughs) And he's the kind of guy who means it. And so I gave him a little bit of insight as to the wilderness journey that we were on. Not very much, there wasn't enough time, but a little bit. He listened carefully, he said some encouraging things, and he said if we ever came to the UK uh, that he should 
you know, we should look him and Bridget, his wife, up, and we should get together one time. Now, when you're in radio, you get all sorts of offers like that. People say, yeah, man, if you're coming through L.A., let's hang, dude, you know? Uh, <laughs> it's actually just a nice way to say bye. <laughs> but Adrian really meant it. And so when we came to the U.K., I dropped him an email, and he emailed very back, straight back, and he said, when are you coming up? So there was this day where Marin and I drove up to North Yorkshire where the Plassers were at the time and we spent this weekend in their, their house and we told them the story. We went for a walk through uh, the park in the afternoon, that Saturday afternoon. Marin and Bridget went on ahead of us. Adrian and I kind of pulled back and Adrian asked me again, how are you now? I said, well, you know, we're going okay. Coming to Oxford has been the new beginning Merrin needed. You know, she gets a bit teary at times, but, you know, she's really come on really so much well. It's been the new beginning she needed. Things are a little bit up in the air for me, but, you know, God's good, I think. I guess, Adrian, we're really trying to focus on the upside of being childless. You know, you've got more time for yourself, and you can travel, and you've got more freedom and things like that. And he listens very carefully, and he says, yeah, okay, I get that, but that will only ever take you so far. Walk a little bit further, and then he explains what he means. He said, Sheridan, have you ever thought about how many people Jesus ministered to while he hung on the cross? You think about it. He ministered to his mum. What did he say? Mother, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. Putting his mother in the care of his friend John when he's hanging on the cross, looking after her future. He ministered to the thief crucified next to him. What did he say? Today you will be with me in paradise. He ministered to the people that had crucified him. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He ministered to the centurion, who obviously had a revelation of God by saying, surely this was the Son of God. And he ministered to all of us, Sheridan, as he was hanging there, paying the debt, paying the penalty for our sins. All of this happened before the resurrection. All of this happened in the midst of the crucifixion. Now, I had never seen that before. He said, yes, Sheridan, there will be some upsides. There will be some upsides to being childless. But Jesus never looked for an upside to the crucifixion. He did something completely and utterly different. There will be some good times that you'll have as a result of being childless, but other times it'll be dark and lonely and it'll be excruciating. But if you follow the way of the cross, if you give it to him, if you allow him to do it, God will turn your suffering into opportunities to serve others in a way that you otherwise never could. We went to a pub afterwards, had dinner. Over dinner, the whole story came out. After dinner, we went back to their place. Marin went off to bed. Bridget went off to bed. Uh, Adrian and I sat sitting by the fire, sipping port. Now, (laughs) after that, you can never, ever say that I'm not a true Brit. (laughs) We were talking about, you know, my difficult time trying to get published in the UK. And out of the blue, Adrian says, have you thought about turning your story into a book? I said, which story? (laughs) The story you just told us tonight, everything that you've been going through for the last 10 years. Oh, that? What do you mean? Like like a memoir? He said, yes. I said, no. (laughs) Even if I thought it was a good idea, which I don't, I don't think Merrin would be very much uh, open to the idea going all public on this idea. Besides, Adrian, I don't want to be known as the infertility guy. (laughs) I had other ideas as to what I think my plan and mission should be in life. He said, fair enough. I just know a lot of people that could deal with you know, do with reading a story like that. But I want to be known as infertility. Your story is beyond infertility, Sheridan. Your story is about broken dreams and it's taking a risk to start again. It's about following God when you do not understand him. I know a number of people that could really benefit from reading a book like that, but as you wish. 
went home, went back to bed actually, um, couldn't sleep all night <laughs> thinking about this idea. I never thought Meryn would be in on the idea at all, going public about our story. Uh, we prayed about it and then we had that sense that probably this was a good idea. And a few weeks later, I sat down at the keyboard and started typing out our story. Uh, the irony of the whole story is that while a UK publisher turned it down because who is Sheridan Boise, the biggest Christian publisher in the world in the US picked it up by reading the manuscript rather than just looking at what Sheridan did or didn't have. And within a few months, it was released, a little book called Resurrection Year. And within days of it being released, I started to get emails from readers from around the world who were telling me things like this, emails that continue nearly a year later every second day. My son has Asperger's and my marriage is in tatters because of my husband's addiction. All my dreams are gone. I've just read Resurrection Year and now I feel I can start again, start finding God again. We lost our first baby last year. My husband now wants a divorce. Thank you for sharing your own broken dream with such honesty. I'm tired of hearing success stories. We get that a lot. I do like this one. I don't often cry when I read, but your book has broken me. I pull beers at the local pub part-time, and a crying bartender doesn't do much for my street cred. <laughs> or this one. I'm crying for the first time in a very long time. Tears of healing. God is working in me through yours and Merrin's story. I'm starting to see the dawn of new things. The wilderness is a place of transition. It's a place where God gives us a new mission. It's a place where God takes us through that horrible time, that dark time. And then what did Naomi talk about? Leads a whole bunch of people out of the darkness and takes them into a new place of, a new place of life that was all fresh and green again. Now, let's remember, the story of, the, of getting into the promised land, you know, it wasn't all plain sailing either, but the fact is it takes us into a new place and I am doing something completely different now than what I ever was doing before as a result of this whole thing. Does it make up for not having a child? Absolutely not. And it needs to be made very, very clear about that. If we go and say, oh, everything's fine now, praise Jesus, because now I don't have the child, but I've got this, well, I think you're probably kidding yourself. The fact is that a broken dream will hurt, but if we want to be deep people, deep wells, if we want to be resurrection people, if we want to be people like David and Susie, who are taking the people who are being rejected by the rest of the world, following the way of the cross... The fact is we're going to have to go through our own cross because there's no depth without pain. No depth without pain. All the deep people that I've met, all the really deep well people, are the people who have gone through profound suffering and they've walked through that suffering with God. And there is no resurrection without crucifixion. And so there has to be some sense of pain and suffering in the Christian life so that you can have that life of God that our sister was also prophesying about. That's what happens. That's the way of the cross. I was praying before and I just felt like some of us needed to have our definition of success completely reworked because we are so used to the success thing being if you just set some goals and work hard and it'll happen, well, that's wonderful. And then we add the kind of whole prayer thing to it and we say, well, God's blessed us. Great. But actually success in the gospel sense, gosh, it's got splinters and nails in it. So I'm going to ask the, the band to come up and that little piece of paper. Here is an opportunity to hand it over. If you're like me and you've got a broken dream, you've probably prayed one of two things over the, the years. You've either prayed that God will fix it and give you what you want or that he'll remove it and remove 
the desire for it. <laughs> Take the dream away. Take the desire for a wife, a husband, a child, a healing. There is a third option, and the third option is that it can go through the cross and be recycled into something new. I never saw that before, but it can be recycled into something new, into depth that can, out of which can bless people with such power and impact. You would never have realized it before. Abraham and Isaac, remember the story? Abraham and Sarah, old, an old couple, an old infertile couple, never been able to have children. God comes and he gives them two promises. You're going to have a child. That's not going to come from a mistress or anything like that. It's going to come from you know, your two very own bodies. And I'm going to make you, Abraham, a father of nations. 27 years later, Isaac is born. And God asks Abraham to, to sacrifice him. Have you ever wondered what was going on there? And so Abraham binds up and carries up Isaac, and he places him on this altar. And you think about it, it struck me when I was on retreat reading that story. It struck me that in Isaac we have a fulfilled dream placed on the altar. And we have the symbol of an unfulfilled dream placed on the altar. Isaac is taken. There is no father of many nations. You might have a dream like me that was fulfilled that is in danger of becoming an idol. When you hand it over to God, it doesn't become an idol. You may have a broken dream or an unfulfilled dream that is so precious to you, and it's good. But here's an opportunity to do what God called Abraham to do, and it's to lay it on the altar. We've set up just a really simple altar here. And so we're going to sing some songs, and guys, play when you're ready, and just write down whether it be a fulfilled or an unfulfilled dream. Might have both might be one of the two. And then when you're ready, just fold it up if you like to keep it private. And then just place it, place it at the cross. Place it on the altar so that the fulfilled dream doesn't become the idol, doesn't dominate your life. And the unfulfilled dream doesn't become something that dominates your life. You get it? So, Spirit of Jesus, may us ask, Lord, that you would raise into our consciousness now all that you want us to hand over, all that you want us to put onto the, the altar, all that you want us to sacrifice to you. And Lord, we know this is risky because you have every right to keep it. You have every right to keep the dream fulfilled or broken. And in Abraham's case, you gave it back and it was a pleasing offering to you. So Lord, I ask that you would speak to my brothers and sisters. I thank you, Lord, for what you've done in our lives this morning. And I ask, God, that you would move each and every one of us to uh, be in a place where we can have that free heart, that free heart before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Feel no pressure about this, but if this is something for you, then please, when you're ready, come and lay your dream fulfilled or broken at the altar.